This is the Annex, an academic sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today, we're going to revisit what I think is one of the coolest corners of the discipline, neurosociology, which studies how the human brain interacts with social life to produce all of the phenomena that we like as sociologists. Our guests for today are Rangan Firat from the sociology department at the University of California at Riverside, Kalina Michalska from the psychology department at UC Riverside, and Will Kalkoff from Kent State University. An introduction to neurosociology coming up. So a few years back, back in 2019, I got to meet Rengen Firat from the University of California at Riverside. Richard Carpiano, uh, a great sociologist. You guys have such a strong department at UC Riverside. Anyhow, Richard Carpiano recommended her, and uh, it was it was a fantastic interview. I liked it so much. We talked about how her research that used brain scans to probe the emotional states that are often bundled up with phenomena that we as sociologists like to study, uh, like racism, ethnocentrism, and things like that. And I really loved hearing about the work. I walked away with an appreciation of uh, how much more complicated and deeply ingrained things like racism are. Uh, you know, it's a worldview that's bound up with visceral reactions and non-conscious behavior. And I walked away thinking, wow, you know, taking a, a racism out of a racist seems tantamount like, convincing an arachnophobe to start liking spiders or to get somebody to quit smoking. It's not just a question of clever arguments. Like there's a lot more going on there that I had no, you know, cognizance of. And so it's one of my all-time favorite episodes. If you want to hear it, you can go on the website or, or hear it in the back catalog. It's from back in 2019. And uh, today, Reagan has been nice enough to uh, sort of arrange a panel and bring in some other neuroscience uh, scholars to talk about these types of topics. So first of all, Rengen, thank you for coming back. It's great to see you again. Thank you. It's it's my great pleasure. I'm thrilled. <laughs> thank you so much. Very briefly, before we move on, can you just give us a sense of what you've been working on uh, lately? Not the details, but the headlines. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm um, my research has been shifting towards health disparities. So I'm still I'm I'm investigating ethno-racial disparities of mental health. Uh, since the pandemic started, I've been very interested in how the pandemic has been affecting mental health, stress levels, anxiety, and depression. So I'm investigating that, and I'm also collaborating with Dr. Mihalska here on uh, studying ethno-racial socialization effects on children's conduct problems and brain development. So that's what I've been up to so far. Yeah, <laughs> and excited to be here again. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh, it's great. I loved your piece in context. I'm looking forward to talking about it. And we do have Rengen's collaborator, I guess, from across the hall or wherever you guys are located from the psychology department. Kalina Michalska is in the sociology department at UC Riverside. It's a pleasure to meet you. I just want to say up front, the first time I interviewed Rengen, I uh, faked that I understood the titles of her articles, and it, it clearly, well, I clearly did not know what I was talking about. So I'm not going to introduce your publications because they're so far out of my league, but welcome, uh, <laughs> Kalina. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? 
Yeah, sure. And thank you for having me. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, thanks, Rengen, for the brief in introduction. Um, so I am the director of the UCR Kind Lab, the Kids Interaction and Neurodevelopment Lab uh, in the psychology department. And our lab is focused on the neurobiology of emotions, including empathy, fear, anxiety, and aggression. And my training is in developmental psychology. So as a developmental scientist, I'm principally interested in understanding how these systems develop um, in typically developing kids, but also kids at risk for psychopathology, including uh, disruptive behavior and anxiety. So cool. And then finally, Will Kalkoff, he's a professor of sociology at Kent State, where he specializes in social psychology, group dynamics, and neurosociology. Again, I would be faking it if I pretended to understand what was being discussed in the title of your articles, but they're really great pieces, and I'm looking forward to uh, uh, talking more about them. Welcome, Will. Uh, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about what you do, what, you, what you're working on now? Yeah, I, along with uh, my colleague, Josh Pollack, I run the Electrophysiological Neuroscience Laboratory of Kent, the NLOC. And, um, you know, we sort of, by testing different social psychological theories using neurosociological methods. But recently, we've been focusing on, we're working with uh, police, police training organizations uh, to study how officers perform in critical incident types of situations, threatening situations. So basically, the shift has turned from sort of typical conventional academic research to uh, more applied types of stuff. Uh, obviously, a timely project. Oh, yeah. I, we got to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Well, first, sure. let, let's orient ourselves towards the field first. So on the first day of your seminars, when the graduate students are wandering in, wondering, you know, what's neurosociology? What am I studying? What are the payoffs? What do you tell them? What is neurosociology? And why is it valuable for aspiring sociologists or sociologists in general to, to study neuro, uh, you know, neuroscience? Why don't we start off with Rankin? Because I saw your syllabus and it looked very good. I'm teaching a neurosociology um, PhD seminar right now. And that's, these are the thing, questions we're dealing with. So last week we talked about this. What is neurosociology? Do we need it? Well, what are we doing here? So obviously a lot of the students are super excited, very interested, and they're super awesome students because they come up with these really creative ideas, bridging neurosciences, psychology with sociology. So they're just like super, they're curious minds. And I'm fascinated with uh, all my discussions with them. But of course, we don't have a clear conclusion on, on what neurosociology is. So last week we talked about this and they asked me, why not just call it social neuroscience? Why do we say neurosociology? And so I um, gave them my position, so I'm going to tell it here. Um, so sometimes we sociologists who do neurosociology, we argue that, well, we are focusing on the social structure, societal phenomena and groups. That's why we call it like neurosociology. I told them that actually social neuroscientists also study these. It's not that they don't understand or they don't know these concepts. I told them that I uh, am using the term neurosociology in a more 
a motivated way to push the discipline in that direction to so that they would embrace neurosciences and biological sciences. Because as you also know, there's a pushback to bio biological or evolutionary sciences from social sciences. Um, that's why I told them that I use it intentionally so that I could um, like open a trail in that direction and students can follow and other people can follow. So I told them it is not necessarily because um, we have like large um, ontological differences with neurosciences. I don't think we do because neurosciences is interdisciplinary. Philosophers are neurosciences. Uh, neuroscientists, economists are neuroscientists, psychologists are neuroscientists. So the reason I'm using the term neurosociology is to make an impact within sociology and kind of um, bridge the fields. And also this way, sociologists can contribute to neurosciences. You know, they're not a lot. They're not a lot of people um, like Will and their lab is one of the few labs in the, in the world, probably. And there are very few people around the world, very few sociologists who do this type of research. So just it's, I think that's an intentional bridge that I'm trying to build. Um, that's what I say. <laughs> that's nice. what I literally said last week <laughs> to my students. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Will? Is that does that sort of concord with what you tell students when they're walking in the door? Yeah, I think that you know the way I usually start is I'll I'll ask them, you know, when was the last time somebody did something, and you assumed they did it for this reason, and you turned out to be wrong, and it doesn't take them very long to give me an example of the last time that that happened, and that's you know that's a fundamental problem in any social science. You know, we study behavior and the reasons why people engage in that behavior or the reasons they tell us they engage in that behavior or what they say about their behavior or what they say they think, that's not always accurate. So, you know, there's a, there's a validity problem there. And I think what really drew me to neuroscience is, you know, we can start to, to look more deeply into the mechanisms behind behavior, the actual explanations for why people do what they do. And so that, for me, it helps solve sort of a fundamental sociological problem, which is the difference between what people say they do, what they actually do, or what they say they think and what they actually think. I mean, it's kind of an overstatement, but the brain doesn't lie. Yeah. So that's what really got me interested in it. So from the, what do you, what do you guys see as the payoffs? Maybe I'll start with Kalita. From the outside looking at sociologists, what do you see as the big value added that neuroscience could do to bolster, you know, these uh, these aspiring sociologists' career or put them on a path to better science or better theory? Any, uh, what are your thoughts on that, the value of it? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. Um, and I think, you know, in my own classes, I'm a developmental neuroscientist. So I, until I started collaborating with Rengen, I didn't particularly phrase my questions in a sociological context, but really, um, development and social behavior and social interactions are inherently social phenomena um, that are informed by sociology. And I think, you know, what we can offer, and especially developmental neuroscience in particular, is that our neurobiology has shaped the cultures that we've created, right? So, so humans have created these complex social structures, these complex um, organizations, groups, and also cultures shape our own brain. So there's really like a bi-directional relationship. And I think understanding like what some of these biological principles are that help shape social structures can um, lead to an important dialogue. 
So I think that, you know, when sociologists consider biological factors and biological principles about brain organization, they can learn about how these social structures emerge. Any other views on the payoffs, uh, Will or Rengen? Payoffs when a young person is like, yeah, well, what's this going to do for me? Yeah, it is. I mean, there are payoffs. And I tell my students that it is not the traditional sociological route. It is not the traditional path. Um, I'm pretty open. I tell them it might be more difficult to publish. It might add to your training. It might add in terms of time and the coursework that you do. Um, It might be difficult to present or find avenues to present, but I also tell them that the discipline has been moving and changing, and now there are more platforms, there are more venues um, to do this. Um, And people are collaborating. There's a lot of interdisciplinary um, research, social sciences, psychological sciences. We have a lot of collaborations. So in that sense, it might also be helpful. Uh, But there are obviously payoffs and trade-offs, and um, we have witnessed it in like I, I have faced it in my career. It's not always it's a bumpy road. It's not always easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you I tell them, if you're curious about it, if is this something you like to do, because what we research ultimately should give us, I think, joy and we should enjoy it. And it should, we, should, it, we should be passionate about it. So if it is something that they're passionate, I'm like, it's worth the bumpy road. Just do it. <laughs> And so far, yes, yes, it's a mixed bag. A lot of students are super passionate, but some students just, they just want to be exposed, but not necessarily follow the path of a neurosociologist. It's it's also like you can't do something new if it's well-recognized. Like, I guess the safe path for that is if you want to just analyze GSS data, run regressions on GSS, like that's recognizable, but it's not really a path to, you know, big innovation. Yeah. What, Will, did you, what, what's your view on, on this, sort of the payoff of neurosocial? Well, the payoff kind of ties back to what, or at least in my mind, ties back to what I started out by saying. And, you know, sociologists study things where it's it's very hard, you know, for example, just to ask someone, so are, are you a racist or are you a sexist? You know, there's very few people who maybe if they are a racist, they're going to tell you that, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's a great Dostoevsky quote. I can't remember the quote exactly, but I'll have to more paraphrase it. You know, it says everybody has these things lurking around in their mind that they, they wouldn't tell, you know, even to their friends, they'll keep to themselves. But then he says, but also within us, there's things that we don't even want to admit to ourselves. Yeah. So even for those who might not think, yeah, I'm a racist, but I'm not going to tell this person that, you know, there are these biases within us that we don't, we don't even have a conscious awareness of ourselves, and, and these neurosociological methods allow us to to probe that a little bit. So, to give you an example, we're studying students' reactions of their student participants. We're studying their reactions to mugshots, hmm. and we're looking at an EEG signature that is basically a measure of social expectation. And what we're finding is that when people look at a picture of a black suspect in a in a jumpsuit, they aren't as put off by that or they think yeah that's the way things are supposed to be but when they see a white person in a jumpsuit you know you see a spike in this EEG signature that measures this sort of expectancy violation huh. and so you, you get a, you get kind of a sense of of how people think of you know th- we're trying to tie this to you know jury decision making huh. and that uh, you know you expect people in certain groups to be criminals and you don't expect people in other groups to be criminals 
you know, and how does that factor into things like jury decision making and criminal sentencing? And this is not something you can ask someone, you know. Right. Were you biased when you uh, when you were on that jury? If, you know, most people are going to say no, and maybe they weren't, but maybe they were. Yeah. And so, you know, using some of these techniques, we can really probe deeply into the conscious and unconscious uh, caverns of the, of the human brain, the human mind, to see what's going on in there and to, to try to get a sense of where these biases are and how they occur in social context. So I think that's the value, studying things that are hard to study. Yeah, really. I mean, I guess it, 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 so you can get to the person who's like, says, well, I, demo I, you know, I donate to the Democrats and I believe all of, I profess to believe yeah. all of these things, but you can still probe to the finding that will not surprise a lot of people that those self-reported, you know, race blind people have, have implicit reactions to race. And that plays out, I guess, across social life is what you're saying. Sure. I, and, and, you know, we shouldn't, you know, it's important that they do do the things that they do, too. You know, they, they do all these wonderful things in society. And just because, you know, there's some kind of some bias there that doesn't make them a bad person. But what it does suggest, you know, it, it can it can be something that a person can really use for self-reflection. So, you know, let's say if we find out uh, there's some kind of bias lurking in there, you know, and, and I go back to the, you know, the sort of jury context. You know, are you going to pay attention to certain kind of evidence that are more consistent with this this view that you might not even be aware that you have, you know, so selective perception issues, confirmation biases. So there's all sorts of interesting things that come up. And I think social scientists could, could benefit from understanding how that influences their own teaching and research as well, because, you know, we're not immune from it either. Yeah, that's one of the things that really is interesting and struck me in my first exposure to, to neurosociology is like, it has, uh, it ha at least has the promise that you can overcome some fundamental weaknesses in all of the methods that we've been relying on, like self-reports and uh, observational research. Like, mm -hmm. it, 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 you can really dig down, and it's 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 quite it's quite interesting. I, I have to say, one thing that I enjoyed in my first exposure to Rengen's work was uh, I had. Uh, Part of my work is in culture, and uh, I had a very ideational-centric view of culture. You know, like, I, I don't know if you follow, like, the sociology of culture literature, but it's very, uh, you know, it's very focused on the ideational structures that people use to interpret the world. And, uh, you know, you can, it, it's easy to fall back on sort of an over-mental or an over-sort of conscious actor conception of, of how social groups work. And what really struck me about Rengen was like, wow, so much of what we do is not conscious behavior. So much of what we observe and what manifests as group behavior isn't driven by deliberate decisions or, uh, you know, purpose of behavior, but rather like automatic behavior that wouldn't even come through if you asked a person to account for what they do for, or, you know, to, for explanations of, of why they behave as they do. Maybe it's interesting to to drill down a little into sort of some of the concepts, some of those like pre-conscious concepts that your work taps into and, and might be part of, uh, you know, if sociologists were to construct theories premised on action models, then maybe they can develop action models that are a little more concordant with what we know of how people think and how people behave and how people act. Maybe we'll just do a little walkthrough I thought maybe we could start off with Rengen's uh, context piece, or at least the research that she alluded to in her recent context piece. Do you want to start us off, Rengen? Sure. I mean, 
actually before that i also want to remark that a lot of our um a, a lot of our thought processes are also emotional so it's not just non-conscious or implicit but it is also emotional and the way we react all our thought formation behaviors they are very emotional because i also study morality and culture so i'm very familiar with sociology of culture um literature so i mean we have a lot to learn from psychology and neurosciences because of the findings um, that they brought on emotions and like morality we are as, as sociologists we shifted our attention to emotions literature and affect and now we see how important it is these affective processes so in a way um so in the context piece i um i am actually studying um morality and how morality and values how does that um shift our schemas our framing of the world around us and especially within the pandemic context how do people respond so one of a one of the things one of the um topics i'm interested in is that do values do these moral values that sociologists define as abstract and mostly conscious um constructs do they moderate these processes like do they help people cope with uh, negative life stressors like discrimination or the negative effects of the pandemic so that's what i tried to do in that piece that's actually an illustration of some of my other empirical pieces like larger projects and what i'm trying to show is that the, even the processes with values they are non-conscious and they are emotional right so this is not something that is considered in sociology literature a lot like so values and morality traditionally they have been um, thought to be more rational and conscious and cognitive processes but what i'm saying is that no they're not that rational they're actually emotional and they might help people cope with these difficult situations and they might be important resources for people for marginalized people you know for communities who are marginalized and if we understand how they operate then we can understand which ones would be more useful for different communities and we can maybe help in that direction we can support certain cultural coping mechanisms coping styles so that's what i'm being that's like not necessarily what i did in that context piece because it's very short <laughs> but this is part of my larger research agenda <laughs> can i just piggyback on something you said i remember i spoke to craig rawlings a few weeks back on a different episode about cults and how people like shift their beliefs and can sometimes engage in self-harm and what i walked away with was an impression of how pliant people's reasoning is like how motivated and vulnerable to uh, you know, motivated reasoning are, are just our way of seeing the world is. It's really striking. And it sometimes makes you wonder if it even makes sense to rely on people's accounts of why they do what they do, like yes. how valuable those things actually are. Yes, very difficult to change people's minds. Like you're not going to change people's minds by explaining them the pros and cons of something. There's a lot of literature in political psychology as well that show that what you say, what the politicians say, they do not matter. But if you just change the person who is saying that, then you can change the person's mind. And I just quoted this. I just um, um, I browsed the, um, online. <laughs> I browsed Reddit a lot. So I found this like meme and I just told it to my students. Like, if you want to change someone's mind, you don't need to like argue with them or anything. Just tell them that someone they think is stupid agrees with them. And then they're going to change their mind. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
So let's let's talk about uh, agency and health outcomes. You were talking about agency in that yeah. piece. What is agency? That's an interesting sort of topic. Tell us about it. What is agency and how does it affect health outcomes? Yeah, I focus on agency. I mean, there's a big sociological literature on agency, and it is rather debated, the concept of agency. What is it? Do we have this capacity for agency? I focus on it a little bit differently. So I think that agency is this motivation or the I also focus on the value of agency that is structured. So I don't think that people, some people biologically have more agency than others. I think that all humans have the capacity for agency, which is being in charge or control of our environment, being able to manipulate our environment and future foresight, future planning in in tandem with our um, reflections on our own self. So we can guide our actions. And we are studying certain, that's why I study certain values. I think they can motivate, they might be important motivators for agentic capacities. So that's what I focus in terms of agency, agentic values. Um, but I think all humans share this. And actually we share this with other primates and even with some monkeys to a certain capacity. I interpret it, and please correct me with all of your stuff. I'm going to profess that I'm going to get everything wrong, and you should think of me as like a B-minus <laughs> student. But what I gathered from you was that you you were saying, I, I was in, inferring that the environment sort of conditions people to think that if they behave proactively, it will pan out for them. And there are other people who are somehow taught by the environment the lesson that no matter what you do it's going to fail or something along those lines mm-hmm. and your argument is that being conditioned in an environment to believe that your choices matter is a factor in whether or not people can protect themselves or seek help is that the that's the basic idea yeah Yeah, because agency is such a fundamental, I think, human and also other primate construct that it is very crucial in our well-being. Like this capacity for well-being is very important for that. And I think this the opportunity, so that's why I think we all have it, but the opportunity to enact it or the opportunity to value it or to motivate us in that direction is very structural. And it is tied to structural inequalities. So that's the position that I was taking. So these inequalities, so people have this capacity, but if people are oppressed, they can't act on this capacity. And then it's not helpful. So I think what I was trying to say is that we have to find structural opportunities that's going to help people to be able to act on these capacities. Because I think communities' own judgments of their own well-being is very important. And that's something we don't often take into account. Also, as sociologists, we're very top-down, very didactic, but we need to focus a little bit on the capacities of the communities, of these community members. And actually, with uh, Kalina, we have a research project where we're trying to do that. We're trying to bring community members' input in our research. We meet with them regularly. We ask them about our research, what they think. We get their input. We ask them, what is important for you? How can we help you? And they give us feedback. So, And I think that's very important. And having that agency, when, like having the, the being able to contribute to our research is, I think, helping them. It's just the fact that they can do this, giving them this opportunity. So that was my position. I don't know if it's like a clear answer, but it's... A... <laughs> what I liked about it is that it, it, it presents agency or agentic behavior as a variable that's like distributed across the population. I mean, there's a lot of theories that just assume people behave with agency or they're like structural dopes but i've never 
thought of it as like a, a population characteristic or something that could be inculcated or discouraged. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's sort of the idea with neurosoch. You can you can get a sense of different action models that underpin our theories, and it sort of opens the door to thinking of different phenomena. Let's do another one. I, I okay, Kalina. I wanted to do one that I I liked in your work. This was. So Kalina does a lot of work on fear and reaction to harm. And I wanted to talk about your work on threat over generalization in children. This is an interesting psychological mechanism that's operant in a lot of phenomena that we study. Can you tell us what's threat? Well, first of all, what can you tell us about threat perception in general? Sure. And, and maybe over generalization in particular. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, threat perception is necessary for survival right like it's um it's evolutionarily adaptive it exists across the spectrum so rats amoeba i mean all kinds of organisms respond to threat in their environment in order to survive so they have to be able to distinguish between threat and safety and and humans have to distinguish between threat and safety um and threat can manifest in different forms, right? It can manifest in uh, in a bear, but it can also manifest in a police officer who is a threat to some people, but not to others. Um, threat to some people of color, uh, not to others. And social threat, it could be an educator. So it could be an educator that treats a child differently because of their background, because of their race, because of their gender, all kinds of things. So, so the... You know, there, there's immediate biologically relevant threat, but then social threat is is just as much a threat. And so it's adaptive for organisms to be vigilant around different exemplars of threat and safety. You don't want to be casual um, around a police officer because that has deadly consequences if you're from a particular background. So, so, so you do want to be uh, vigilant, but threat generalization is the mechanism by which threat responses, so freezing, running away, um, sometimes aggression even, um, they extend to a range of stimuli. So let's say you have an experience with a person um, who treats you badly or who presents a threat, and then you generalize to other individuals who maybe look like that person, who maybe have similar characteristics, and then it's no longer adaptive because maybe right. that was a good opportunity for you. Maybe that was a learning opportunity. Maybe that that individual actually wanted to help you. But because your threat response now generalized to an individual who looked similar to the first one, right? Sort of. So the the generalization is basically learning mechanisms, and whereby the threat response extends to a range of stimuli. So it. it enables a rapid response, but at the same time, it can actually contribute to the emergence of anxiety. If you're uh, wary of all people who look similar, um, you can then um, develop an anxiety disorder and avoid, and avoid social situations that might be um, helpful. So it's it's almost like what you're, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that just as a person can develop fears about something, a class of things that are associated with a particular traumatic experience or maybe series of traumatic experiences, you're saying that like entire communities, if they are, if they feel like they've been subjected to threat, they can over, they can become fearful or develop phobias like to police. You can, you can develop like a police phobia, basically, and it almost exists like a clinical level, like an arachnophobe is afraid of spiders. Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? And y- yes. And, 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 you know, like I've before 
collaborating with Rengen, I often thought of, I, I didn't think about it at the population level, um, but I thought about it in terms of an individual difference, a biologically based difference. But here it's actually, you can't really call it psychopathology because it's an adaptive response to trauma, right? Like right. it's actually quite adaptive. Very sadly, it's adaptive to, to have this generalized response because the, the, the cost is so much greater. I have a question. So are there the ways that we treat these cases in the particular, like you run into a child who's afraid of, I don't know, all adults because they had a bad experience with an adult. Clinically, what would you do with that child? And are there analogs that could be implemented on a population level? Like, is there some type of key to breaking some of these problems or is it too hard? Am I just reaching too much? No, I think some of the most successful therapies are actually um, exposure therapies. So, you know, sometimes we see kids who are um, afraid of fruit. Um, and then you might expose the child to a picture of a fruit, photograph of a fruit, uh, a, a toy fruit, and then an actual fruit. And so exposure therapies in this context, it's tricky. Um, and so Rengen and I are working on some buffers that might provide kids with tools to um, to sort of not internalize and not have chronic anxiety. But at the same time, as I mentioned, like some of these responses are actually adaptive because these things may in fact be harmful. <laughs> um, and so totally letting down your defenses wouldn't be an adaptive strategy. So I think working on both of these things in parallel, A, dismantling these structures that are facilitating this kind of generalization is absolutely necessary. In the interim, giving children and adults as well, but children the tools to, to, to be prepared and to be, as the Rangan says, active agents, I think we could do those things in parallel. And we know from, from the individual level that, that ex exposure is very beneficial and the extent to which we want to implement exposure for these broader social values, I think, is something that sociologists can be really informative about. I love this topic. I have like a uh, topic envy with you guys on some level. Like <laughs> I stopped biology in grade 11, so it's definitely not going to happen for me, but I just love hearing about it. Will you, you wrote on uh, status systems. It's a, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, the system by which people come to defer to one another, like a social hierarchy. And you talked about expectation states. What's that? How, tell us about it. Well, there was kind of, I mean, the theory that we were looking at says, you know, differences in social status produce differences in expectations of competence, which then produce differences in influence. So, for example, we expect someone who's highly educated to be more competent than someone who had more generally competent than someone who has less education. So we would expect, you know, the person with more education to be more influential. The problem with that theory is it's very difficult to measure the mediating construct expectations. We've always just assumed it. Right. You know, we've tried to measure it, but you know, they'll measure it at the end of the study, in which case they're you know, uh, creating a methodological problem. You're measuring the mediator after the outcome. <laughs> and they, they've tried all, all sorts of ways to deal with it. So the whole point of that article was to try to measure this mediating construct expectations of competence using electroencephalography. And, and actually that same measure I was referring to earlier this, this measure, this brain level measure of expectancy violation. And so that's what we were attempting to do. So we had, you know, a participant who was manipulated to be either high status or low status relative to a partner. 
And then the partner was engaging in behaviors that, they, that were either inconsistent or consistent with their status assignment. So, you know, you might, um, you might think that you're high status and you have this low status partner that's going along with you. You know, if you, if you have a disagreement, they say, yeah, 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 you're right. That's what we would expect to happen. But you can have a low status partner who keeps disagreeing with a high status person, which is an expectancy violation. And you can have, it can be the other way around too. You know, you can have someone who is high status, who's continually changing their mind to go along with someone who is low status. So we can create these different consistent or inconsistent behaviors. And it was, it was really cool to see how perfectly they lined up with this uh, EEG measure of expectancy violation. I mean, the results couldn't have been more perfect. I mean, the greater the expectancy violation, the greater the EEG signature. It was really kind of fascinating. So I think we really found evidence of this mediating construct in this paper. So just what's EEG? Can you just explain it in a really dumb way? Yeah, it's um, it's electroencephalography, EEG. And so basically, you know, you put on this thing that looks kind of like, in the most common application, you'll put on this thing that looks kind of like a swim cap. Uh. And it's got electrodes that are placed across the surface of this cap. And in our case, we inject a little bit of gel into each electrode to create a contact between the electrode and the and the scalp. And basically, these electrodes are are directly measuring electrical activity in the brain at the neuronal level. Huh. Um, so you, you can measure brain activity using electroencephalography. Now, it's not as good as methods like what Rengen uses, fMRI, for determining where in the brain is something is coming from, but uh, it does have a, a number of common applications. Um, you can do some analysis of, of localization, but it's 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 not very well regarded. Normally what we do with is what's called event-related potential analysis. It's very commonly used for that. And that's what we were using it for in the study that you that you read. And basically the idea is, you know, past research has shown that certain kinds of cognitive activities, certain kinds of emotional reactions are associated with specific EEG signatures. Right, right. So, you know, the knowledge the knowledgeable sociologist would have this encyclopedia of different things that EEG measures, you know, cognitive activity, expectancy violation, uh. fear. And so we say, okay, we want to measure fear, so let's look at this particular measure. And then you just look at past research to see how they've done it, and you would replicate that. So that's basically what it's doing. So just to be uh, – just to make sure I understand. So it's like you have a, like almost a hat or a helmet that measures the electrical activity of your brain. Yes. And over time, people have cataloged, and they're like, when you see this electrical activity, it means the person's doing this. When you see exactly. this, it means they're doing that, et cetera. And exactly. this research found that when high-status or low-status people break their rules, their expected rules, yes. then it, it, it's like the part of the brain that lights up that says something is wrong here or like what you – something is wrong here is lighting up in essence. I guess it's an expectation violation, but – yeah, it's not necessarily the part of the brain that we're looking at. That would be something Rengen would do with functional right. magnetic resonance imaging. But there, there is this, you know, we did an, what's called electrical an event-related potential. Yeah, an electrical signature that's very well known as a measure of the degree of expectancy violation. So, you know, what more perfect measure to use if you want to study expect expectations and, and violations of expectations. 
Does that distress people? Like violated expectations, is that a source of distress generally? Or how do people react to that? Uh, it's very interesting that you should bring that up because yeah, it should generate some level of discomfort. And actually we predicted that the greatest reaction would be seen among high status people who have this low status partner who keeps disagreeing with them because in this particular study design, there was money on the line. Yeah. So the more prob the more problems that you got correct, the more money you'd get paid. And so this high status person is sitting there thinking, I know what I'm doing. Why do you keep disagreeing with me? And we actually had a guy pound his fists on the table and yell an expletive <laughs> that I won't repeat. But I think it's the same one you use when your microphone just cut out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's you're right. There is some level of discomfort there um, when expectations are violated. You think that's kind of what caused reactions to Obama? I always felt like part of the negative reaction that people had to Obama was seeing a black person not act subordinate, like to act like an authority figure. And, and I mean, if there is somebody who has like a, a very a strong idea of race status hierarchies and they see somebody yeah. in their racial hierarchy who's not behaving with that inferior status that they want them to if it angered them or distressed them you could you could really it, it, it helps make sense of some of the reactions that you see yeah yeah i mean for me it's really it's becoming the central concept and the central measure that's coming up in many different projects we use the same measure in the identity paper that you read we're using it in that uh mugshot study that I mentioned and what you're talking about sounds very similar to what we found in the mugshot study where you know again you know people see a, a, a black man in a jumpsuit and they go yeah yeah that that makes sense but then they see a white man in a jumpsuit and they're like wait a minute you know what's going on there so the same kind of thing in what you're talking about you know of course there's going to be individual differences here you know not not everyone necessarily thinks that way but yeah i think for a certain segment of the population perhaps that is what was going on it's like wait a minute this we're not used to seeing this this is bizarre what's going on here so you know there could be some sense of an expectancy violation there you know i also what i liked about that article is it resonated with uh my experience growing up jewish in a place where there were no jews and it was like you know i can understand how prejudice is higher in places where people don't have direct exposure to people of that group and you develop these unrealistic ideas about how you know different people of different races would act or how they are and I could see how, you know, if you had never met a black person in your life and, you know, you, you've got a, a bunch of unrealistic expectations of how, you know, how, how black people should behave, then, yeah, it could be distressful. You're like jarred when you actually yeah. come up against a three-dimensional normal person yeah. and find that they don't act, in, you know, along the lines of your simple caricatures. It's interesting. Yeah, I had an undergraduate student who did a totally fascinating project using the same measure, and she basically looked at or had undergraduates look at pictures of females either in professional roles or in domestic roles. So in some of the pictures, the females were judges uh, in a courtroom or doctors performing surgery. In other pictures, it was females washing the dishes and vacuuming. And what she found, even among you know a fairly woke population of, of students at Kent State, was the the feedback related negativity that event related potential i was telling you about that measure of expectancy violation was bigger when participants looked at images of women in professional roles so it's 
you know, how far have we come? I don't know. But, you know, when, when you've got young undergraduate students looking at pictures of females in different roles and they see them in domestic role, domestic roles and say, yeah, that that's that makes sense. And then they see them in professional roles and, oh, wait a minute, what's going on there? You know, so it's yeah, uh, it was such a fascinating study. Yeah, it's like your sense of, of gender attitudes as filtered through like social desirability bias. It seems like young people would be very egalitarian. Or, yeah. And what, and you're and you're digging past their even their self concept. Yeah. And finding that no, nah, they got regressive views too. This stuff is alive and well. Yeah, and it's you know I, does that necessarily translate into behavior? You know, we didn't study that, but it is interesting that these. I guess for us the idea was that you know there's these cultural beliefs out there about who people are and what they should do. And we were clearly picking up on on those cultural beliefs in this particular study. You know, again, whether that translates into some kind of discriminatory behavior is a different kind of question. But we were did not expect to find what we found. It was among such a young population that's su- supposedly progressive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this stuff is all so fascinating. And to me, like the the benefits of building better theory are very, very obvious. But I would imagine that there are a lot of people in the discipline, I don't want to say who are hostile, but maybe are unenthused about sociobiology or biological driven explanations of social behavior. Like, obviously, there's like a, a legacy of people using pseudoscience to justify racism. But that legacy might also cause people to pass on anything that smells of biology meets sociology. What is your sense of people's reactions to, you know, the intersection of biology and, and, and social science? And like, what, you know, how do you, how do you deal with it? How do you address people's reactions? Anybody who wants to jump in with that one can start. I mean, it's, it's a tough call. I mean, um, I would like to hear from Bill too because um, he's my senior, so I'm curious how his experiences have been. But in my experience, um, so I got my PhD in 2013. Um, so I got my training for like six years and then I did a postdoc and then entered um, as a professor. So I have been witnessing actually um, a decline in resistance um, from the sociology um, against biological and neuroscientific sciences. And I think it's primarily because neurosciences are um, advancing so rapidly and it's a very popular field and it's also very popular in popular media that I think sociologists now understand that they can't really um, resist or object to it. Of course, there is still some resistance, there's still some hostility, uh, but I think it has been changing. Um, it's hard when I tackle with it. I think it's, I tell them that, I mean, it's very important to give the exact science, yeah, give it accurately and acknowledge your limitations. Um, it's very important to convey that some of these methods are also subjective. Some of the, a lot of these methods, like brain imaging, is correlational. It's not causation. So it's very important to acknowledge and tell them that, look, this is just like any other scientific approach. We're trying to understand it. And a lot of sociologists would not disagree that we are evolved humans, like we are evolved beings. You know, a lot of sociologists are not going to deny human evolution. So there's ba- there's a basic shared understanding that we're biological beings you know i mean we all get sick and go to the hospital there's no i mean there's no sense in denying that we have a biology and i i try to always give the message that we will miss out if we don't enter the dialogue i mean we need to be present 
so to like make the picture more complete make it better otherwise then the science will be biased so that's the message i try to give i think well what do you see you you've been in this a while and i think it looks like you've sort of established a, a beachhead in the uh, in the discipline in this type of work it's a lonely beachhead <laughs> I got the beach all to myself, and you know sometimes Rengan stops by, and then I go to her beach, and I mean it's it's a very quiet beach. <laughs> What's the pushback though that you got in all this? Because I imagine oh. it, it was tough to make it to this point. Yeah, I, uh, I I think the the example that comes to mind immediately was when I was going to teach a graduate seminar in neurosociology for the first time, and there was actually an effort to block the course. Wow. Really? Yet uh, we have no business teaching such courses in a sociology department. So that was interesting. Wow. Um, so I had to defend this course. And I had some students take the course who specifically took the course to disagree with everything I said. And oh, they ended God. up being yeah. some of the biggest fans of neurosociology when they <laughs> left the course. So, I, yeah. you know, I've gotten kind of used to it. And I don't know if it's gotten better or worse over the years, but usually my strategy, you know, when someone starts talking about eugenics and social Darwinism and, and what is Professor yeah. Kelkoff doing up in his lab with wires coming out of people's heads and everything, um, <laughs> is, you know, I'll, I'll direct them to a few readings, you know, I'll say before you judge me on what I'm doing, why don't you read some of the stuff that's being done rather than being used to promote inequality or create inequality. You know, a, a lot of this research is used is being used to expose inequality and address inequality and has applications to improving social inequalities or eradicating them. So that's a the big part is just go read something. And then the second thing I mentioned that seems to be the most persuasive is if you want to critique what I do, you should probably learn something about it first because no one's going to listen to you. You know, if, <laughs> if you start criticizing somebody's neuroscience research and you know nothing about neuroscience, no one is going to listen to you at all. So if you want to be a watchdog, and I agree that we need watchdogs in science in general, you better know what you're talking about. And so <laughs> I think sociologists could benefit from becoming more familiar with these methods and insights of neuroscience. So if they do have a critique of something, People will listen, but, you know, no one's going to listen to someone who has no education, training, or background in the methods or insights that they're criticizing. At least we'd hope. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. No, I no I'm, just, I'm saying that flippantly. <laughs> no, I'm just making that as a joke. I have a question. So your field has a lot of strong interdisciplinary ties. And Kalina, you're, you're doing the same thing on your end as a psychologist who works with sociologists, a lot of departments, a lot of people are more insular. And uh, I, I was hoping you could just take a moment to speak about the what's been rewarding for you about being so interdisciplinary. Because I mean, the downsides are obvious, but how, more than, I mean, we can all imagine the benefits, but how do you do it well? What type of attitude or posture should you assume when you're engaging in uh, multi-interdisciplinary research, just to make it a payoff, make it work. Uh, Kalina, can you start? Yeah, that's a really great question. I appreciate the question. And I think maybe it goes back to your earlier question about people's hesitance about neuroscience, you know, and, and where does that come from? It might come from 
feeling threatened or feeling that you want to reduce social phenomena to biological phenomena. But I think that um, my position that I communicate is that's not my goal. Like my goal is not to reduce like the complexity and the beauty of social behavior to biological uh, phenomena, but rather to discuss the connection between them. And if you see that, that the goal is to, to um, establish the connection between them, then that creates for a different dialogue. And I really, really believe that insular science is no longer a viable path forward. Um, the questions that we have, the tools that we have at our fingertips require collaborations across disciplines, require people who have expertise um, in a particular area. I can't study the questions that I'm studying without um, the expertise of Rengen because I simply don't have the years of training, don't have the, the intuition and the insight, um, but we can work on them together. And I think doing it well, it, to me, um, I think it's important to pick people who are aligned with your values, who um, are curious and interested in the same goal, and also who have a generosity of spirit, you know, like who, you know, like what, what are they willing to teach me? What are they, are they generous in what they're willing to teach me? And that will inspire me to be generous in return. And then together, I mean, just like the brain, right? Like, just like the brain isn't, isn't made up of individual parts, but of emergent properties. And I think that like, to the extent that, you know, two people or more collaborative team can build something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so I think finding the right collaborators, um, that takes some uh, trial and error, I think, but, but people who have a similar mindset, who have shared the same values and who are um, generous in their, in their time and their willingness to teach um, somebody without, you know, <laughs> naive experience. Well, how about you? How, how, how to make interdisciplinary research work its best? What what are your what is your advice or what's your take? Yeah, that was tough for me. I mean, it was I think it was really hard to convince people in other fields who had a neuroscience background to work with me. So <laughs> I, I'm, I can well, you know, because they immediately and this happens a lot. And I mentioned this in the social compass piece. I think is. They saw me as the person who was going to say, yeah, I don't know anything about all this EEG stuff, but could you do this project for me? And I think, you know, so you really, for me, there were, I had to engage in a lot of self-education. I had to learn a lot about social neuroscience. I had to learn a lot about EEG before anyone would talk to me, because then if you sit down and they start throwing a bunch of jargon in your face and you understand what they're saying, I think they're much more willing to work with you because now you're not you're not you're not seen as somebody who's just you know self-interested and is just going to use them to collect data for mm -hmm. them. So, but I think once you establish those bridges, I totally agree with Kalina, and I know Ringan agrees as well that uh, interdisciplinary is the, is the wave of the future. And um, so I have found it you know just very fruitful and and productive and fun to engage with scholars and other disciplines to study. Um, behaviors that we have a mutual interest in. So I really think sociologists need to get more on board with that idea, that movement. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with both Bell and Kalina. I mean, um, that's why it's important for us to have this neurosociology as a subfield in, in sociology so we can also train our students so they gain that um, common ground, common understanding that for interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary research so they can enter the cross-dialogue. So it's not just expecting from the uh, other side so they can also give. So it's a mutually beneficial endeavor. And um, my experiences uh, might have been different than Will, because when I entered the field, um, neurological training was available to me at Iowa. And I mean, it wasn't available, available, but I I tried. (laughs) So I because I was able to get formal training that um, helped me. Um, enter the dialogue. So at first they were resistant. They were like neuroscience. I like I did all my work in neurology clinic at Iowa. At first they were like, oh, so you want to do neuroscience? That was weird for them as a sociologist. But then I just was there like every day, and I just stick to it. And it like for several years I, I just showed up, and then it changed their attitudes, and that just changed the dialogue. You know, then I was contributing, then I was doing the research, then I was entering the dialogue. But um, also, like Kalina said, finding the right partners is also very important. So like having a dialogue. And I'm, because I'm, I'm doing neurosociology and neurosciences because I'm fascinated by the brain. It's fa- this research is fascinating to me. And I'm, when I'm doing research with Kalina, they're doing just such awesome stuff. They're measuring like cortical thickness. They're looking at like amygdala and like, they're just doing things that I never thought about. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so fascinating. I'm learning so much. So to be able to have this like, like like different perspective and like in this intellectual stimulation is very important to have a collaboration and interdisciplinary collaboration to me it's this i think this internal joy like i need this joy to like move me forward in my research you know that's because that's what i like to do and i like to do it with the people that i like so (laughs) it's also like i find that very few people outside of the academy care about disciplines. You're usually interested in your topic expertise, and it's very easy to look for. I think I, what, what Will said, I, 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 that really resonated with me. In a topic, you'll look foolish if you don't know what other people are doing in your area. If you're, you know, if you're studying racism and you don't know what psychologists have to say or you don't know what, you know, what economists have learned or so, you're going to have partial knowledge and you're sort of going to look intellectually provincial. Yeah. So that also is a nice, nice lesson from you guys on that front. Final question, and this was actually an unexpected one, but it's one that I think uh, it might be the most helpful. If a young person is interested in neuroscience and wants to go down that path, what's a must read? What's a book that must be read in your uh, and present company excluded? We won't create those types of social pressures. We'll assume everybody here is definitely a must read beyond present company, though. Who is must read? Start with Rengen. Yeah, so I built a neurosociology syllabus recently. So I, that's the question that was in my mind. So, and it was a, I found that it was a difficult question, actually. Because it's, you, I wanted equal representation from neurosciences and social sciences. That was difficult. And I also wanted to be able to represent um, different backgrounds because um, 
like diverse backgrounds and there's an effort in sociology to decolonize the syllabus for example some of my dear colleagues work on that and so i wanted to like consciously um try to do that i think to be honest for a sociology student it's very important for them to be exposed to research from psychology and neurosciences so i think that is the most important thing that will be the most novel thing and for the psychology or neuroscience students, reading so- sociology is going to be very important. And I, I kind of challenging these barriers. And I'm not sure if I want to, I could give names. There's several names, but. <laughs> Kalina, go for it. What's the must reads? I think that the must reads for me. So every day we spend reading the empirical papers and there are hundreds of them that, that are, that are important and relevant. But if students like, want to be awed by neuroscience, you know, I would recommend that they read a book um, just to get a, like, just to be inspired and get, um, and be awed. So I love um, Antonio Damasio's work um, on neuroscience and consciousness. Um, Joseph Ledoux has written about, like, the subjective experience of fear and anxiety. Ramachandran is another. And then I also try to think about um, representation in neuroscience. So Sarah Jane Blakemore has written about the developing adolescent brain. Um, all of these books, I would say, are in my, in my pile. You can see she actually has a large pile behind her that she turned to. <laughs> we, we wouldn't have time to enumerate all that behind you. Will, you got a book recommendation? Two books. Uh, Student's Guide to Social Neuroscience by Jamie Ward. Uh, that book is awesome, and I assign it, it would be good for both undergraduates and graduate students and faculty interested in social neuroscience. So that one is a must read. So that's a, a very nice introduction to neuroscience methods and application to social questions. It goes through some of the different research areas in social neuroscience. Read that one first. The second one is to get an idea of what the neurosociological paradigm is is David Frank's Neurosociology. Um, That was one of the groundbreaking books in the field of neurosociology, and he really sort of lays it out. Here's the paradigm. Here's what we do. Here's why we're interested in it. So, yeah, Neurosociology by David Franks and Jamie Ward's Student's Guide to Social Neuroscience. Between those two, you will probably start coming up with your own neurosociological questions, and then you start trying to work your way into a lab get a faculty member who's interested and that's what happened to my student who did that uh, EEG study on how people respond to women in either professional or domestic roles images of them she went down that path you know it's like read this book read this book and then that went to that and then blah blah that's so those two Will Kalkoff from Kent State University, Kalina Michalska from the University of California Riverside Psychology, and Rangan Firat from the University of California Riverside Sociology. Thank you to the three of you for talking to me today. You guys were awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's excellent. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. Thank you to Rangan Firat. Kalina Michalska and Will Kalkoff for joining us today. 
We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianix, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex Sociology Podcast is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our producers are led by Lisette Moreno and Han Mei Cho. Music is by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.